Why don't, you, uh, why don't you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 10. We're going to jump into, back into our series called I Am. So uh, last week we had Barry Young with us, and if you missed that, then you should watch that. It won't be quite the same as live, because Barry has more energy than I had when I was like five. I mean, just like, they, and so I'm not going to be able to bring that energy. I'm sorry. I just don't have it left but very energetic guy, very um, inspirational message. I mean, just very encouraging um, to that. But two weeks ago, we were in the I Am series here this summer, and um, we're, we're getting back into that. This is our summer series that we're going to go through here, and it's called I Am. All through the Bible, God made what we call I Am statements. He would say, I Am. Even Scott, when he kicked off the series in the beginning of May, he talked about when Moses said, who, you know, who shall I tell him is sending me? And he says, tell him the I am that I am. The thing about when, when God says I am, all right, it is a declaration of who he is as God. Okay, even in the Old Testament, there's oftentimes when God would speak, he would start by saying, I am the Lord your God. That's how he would start. I am the Lord your God. And often he would follow that who brought you out of Egypt. Okay, one of the, the well-known that you might have um, read for sure is Exodus chapter 20, where we see the Ten Commandments. Okay, the Ten Commandments, the first one starts on verse 2. The, the first verse, though, he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Okay, and so he would make these, these declarations. What he was doing is saying who he was, or really who he is. That's why it's a present tense. He is, always was, always will be. And he would say, I am the Lord your God. And then he would say, I, who brought you out of Egypt? And in other words, he was declaring who he is, and then he would say what that means for us. Say, so in this case, he would say, I'm the, I'm the one who gave you this freedom that you have. Remember that as I now give you these commands or whatever it was. And Jesus would often do this. Not only is like, you know, Jesus the son of God. So, you know, you talk like your dad. He does that too, okay? But he also would... would take something that's very familiar with his audience. Jesus was the greatest teacher of all time. He really was. And he would take something familiar with his audience and he would do that same thing. Okay, and so that's what he would do. Just like in the Old Testament, God would say, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, d- declaring his deity as God for you and what it meant for you. Then Jesus would do the same thing when he would say, I am. By saying, I am, he's referencing all of those times that God said, I am, I am, I am. He's declaring his deity, and then he would say what that meant for us. So he would say, I am the bread of life. Say, I am the light of the world. I am the gate of the sheep. Okay, and so that is what Jesus is doing here. So when Jesus made I am statements, it was an incredibly important proclamation of who he is and what it means for us. And in this series, this summer, that's what we're doing. We're breaking down the seven different I am statements of Jesus that he made. Okay, but understand, that's why when we approach these, that's how we're approaching. This is him saying, this is very much Jesus saying, I am God. I am the son of God. I am was a, was a deity statement. It was a God statement. And then he would fo- follow that up with, this means something for you. The fact that Jesus is the son of God means something very important for us. It means he's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He's the gate of the sheep. And so we're here in John chapter 10. So two weeks ago, we were there. Okay, I preached two weeks ago, and that was I am the gate. Okay, but this, the, today's I am statement was in the same teaching, and so we kind of need to go back. For those of you who weren't there, I encourage you to listen to that. 
Um, but also, I want to kind of give, just make sure we're all on the same page with context here. So in chapter 9, in chapter 9 here, let's remember what was going on. In chapter 9, Jesus healed a man that was born blind, had never seen a day in his life. He goes up to this, this guy, he spits in the dirt, makes spit mud, rubs it in the guy's eyes and says, hey, go wash in the pool, which is probably the easiest command he's ever followed in his life. <laughs> wash this spit out of your eyes, Right? So he goes and does that, washes in the pool as Jesus commands, and instantly he can see. So then he's just proclaiming, Jesus healed him, he's doing all this, and then the Pharisees, okay, the, the biblical religious elite, I should say, the religious elite, not biblical, religious elite, okay, they, they start to investigate this. They investigate this because they really want to disprove that it was Jesus that did this. They thought it was something he was faking, like that he may pay the guy, you know, say he was blind and now he can see and all that. So they're investigating this, they call the guy's parents in, they do all this, and finally the guy just kind of, the, the blind man who was now, now can see just kind of calls him on it, says, you just want, you're just trying to prove this. They, so they kick him out. They kick him out, and when Jesus hears they kick him out, he wants to come talk to him, and that's what we kind of catch up to here in John. Let's go back to John 9, if you're in, in uh, chapter 10, 9, 9.35, Jesus heard this. He said this, do you believe? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Okay, and the son of man, I'm not going to get into that, but that was another proclamation of who he was, going back to the, uh, Daniel's prophecies. But anyway, he says, who, who is he? Tell me that I might believe. You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you right now. Man, Jesus was the best. That's like the most dramatic statement. It's like he's talking to you right now. I just, lo- I just, love, I just love that he's not just like it's me. It's like he has this great way of, of but anyway, so verse 38 says, then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. In 39, Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind, which is obviously a very interesting statement. Verse 40, he says, some Pharisees who were with him, they were around there, heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. We're going to hit that a little bit later, but so that's where then in chapter 10, what chapter 10 is, is him continuing that response to what had happened in chapter 9, what these Pharisees were asking him as he builds on this whole thing of they're they're blind, they're claiming to see, and then we go into chapter 10 here. So let's read this initial illustration in chapter 10. It says this, very truly, I tell you, Pharisees. Anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he was brought out, um, when he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, or we might call it an illustration, right? He used this illustration, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. And that was a couple weeks ago we talked about that. Um, And then verse 10, the thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. 
which brings us to today's statement, which is, I am the good shepherd. That's what he says here in verse 11. I am the, in a lot of ways, this is a second part, kind of to a message two weeks ago. Okay, let's, let's read this. Verse 11, this is today's passage. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. When the wolf attacks the flock, and, uh, then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. I, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my father. In those last couple of verses, the Jews who heard these things were again divided. Many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Would you join me as we pray over the word of God today? God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for these teachings and these statements. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would be ready to receive today. I pray that you would speak your words to us, and that we land on good soil. In Jesus' name, amen. So I was reading, um, in, as I studied this passage over the last couple of weeks, I was reading in a commentary, Life Application Bible commentary, and I like this quote. It said this, after presenting the illustration that we see in the first five verses there, it said, Jesus thought it first necessary to explain the symbolic meaning of the gate in verses seven through 10 before identifying the shepherd in verses 11 through 18. Because remember, you had initial, initial illustration. That's why we went back and read it, because this is all part of the same teaching. Initial illustration in chapter 10, those first five verses, it says they don't get it, and so then he expounds on that. He goes a little deeper and gives a little more detail, and then he has two statements, I am statement, but he starts by saying, I am the gate. And then he says, I am the shepherd. But see, the thing is, if you were here a couple weeks ago, you probably remember this. We talked about, we talked about the gate and the sheepfold and like when we're talking about the sheep pen, when, when shepherds would gather a sheep into a fold at night, they would put them in a sheep, like sheep fold, an area that they were protected. But it often wasn't like a pen like we, we would have. Okay, they might have been, but if they're out in the middle of where there's pasture, they're outside of the town, they would find something or they would make something out there and they would use that. A cave was like one of the biggest examples. You'd find a cave, there's one entrance into a cave, right? And so that's the easiest picture. It might have been something middle stones or sticks that were tall, but either way, it was the same idea as a cave. So you can picture a cave that's just enclosed and all around solid rock, and then there's one opening. And most caves don't have a door or a gate, right? But what would happen is they put him there, and, he would, and the shepherd would stay in the gate, in the opening, the one way in or out. It would stop the sheep from coming out, and he could also protect the sheep from one direction if, if something came came in that way. And so he would stay there. And so why that's significant in understanding that is because the shepherd would stay there. And so who or what was the gate? Or should I say, who was the gate to the sheepfold? The shepherd. They, the, the, um, when, as I've studied this, they would say oftentimes what the, the shepherd would do at night, he would literally just sleep in the opening. 
okay? Because that would, that would stop anything from going out and it would stop anything from coming in because at least it would wake him up when he got there. So the shepherd was literally the gate. So in a lot of ways, he's saying the same thing in this, but he's, he, it's so important that he wants to, us to understand the importance of the symbol of the gate and the function of that gate, that you can come in through the gate and you can find refuge and you can be brought into the fold and be safe from the elements out there and you can experience freedom from sin and the, and the destruction from the world, but then he can also lead you out of that gate to find pasture, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, that's eternal life. That's really where he was going with that. He's like, that's the way, I, that, that the gate is the way to both things, being brought into the fold, brought into the family of God, but it's also that. But then what's the gate? It's the shepherd. And so he takes some time and he, he, he basically by, by saying, I am the gate, he's explaining the symbolic meaning of that gate and what that means. And then he says, I am the good shepherd. Now let me, and so he, what he's saying is, let me tell you why you know that I'm the good shepherd. Okay, the, the illustration was about how the gatekeeper knows his sheep and the sheep know his voice and they will follow him, but they didn't get it and so he went further, right? And so we talked some about that last week. But... He explains that symbolic meaning so that he can identify the shepherd. So the passage is about further identifying the shepherd. In other words, further explaining how can we know that he is the shepherd. He talked about it in the original illustration. He talked about that sheep knowing his voice, right? But he kind of takes it a step further here. So, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. Remember, what does this mean for us. Let's look back at verse 11 here. It says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks and the flock is scat and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing about the sheep. All right, I'm going to give you the key point in this message. Right off the stop, this is like the point of him saying I'm the, the good shepherd is this. By Jesus laying down his life, we know he is the Messiah, okay? There is no doubt because of him laying down his life. Okay, that's the key point, but let me just tell you this. Don't check out today, okay? I got a couple other things to say. All right, but then I also... God wants to do something in you. We have to enter our service, and so there's gonna be some time for that. And so don't check out, don't leave right away. Okay, when I pray near the end, you're not done. Okay, I really want um, to, to help you see what God wants beyond this. But this is the key point. This was the point of this, this statement. He's saying, by me laying down my life, you know that I'm the Messiah. And for us, we don't use Messiah that much, but it's saying this for us, it's our salvation, the way to eternal life. I mean, he's saying, this is the way you know that I am who I... The, claim to be, okay? So this week, I watched one of my favorite movies of all time, Braveheart. I hadn't seen it in a while. I, I, could, I could, if I wanted to, I could give you the freedom speech right now, but I'm not gonna, okay, because that's not what I'm gonna talk about, but it's one of my favorite movies of all time, and um, there's a scene in that movie, and I would say spoiler alert here, but it, it came out 27 years ago, okay? <laughs> So if you have not seen it, it's too late. Just like, but I'm really not going to spoil too much for you. But anyway, there's, if you don't know what it's about, it's about William Wallace, a, a Scottish man who started the rebellion to free Scotland from England, who, who, who ruled over them. Okay, that's what it's about. But how it starts, how the rebellion starts is that 
um, they, he gets married in secret because of some atrocious laws that the English had, had put in place. And there's his wife, his secret wife, gets assaulted. And so he defends her. He thinks she gets away. He's going to meet her somewhere. And she's killed. She's put to death by this local magistrate so that this guy who was attacking his soldiers will come. Okay? Big mistake. Okay? That's how the movie starts. That's how the whole rebellion starts. Okay? So anyway, the, the, the first sequence, that's what I'm talking about, uh, when I, it, it just kind of struck me this week. Which is the part where he comes, kind of acts like he's going to surrender to him. But then him and his buddies, they come and just take over this. Because he's going to avenge his wife. And every man, when I said avenge, was like, mm, yeah. Like, right? Like, it just kind of happened. You couldn't help it. It's like, that's it's just what it does. Okay. So, he comes in. But there's a scene where once the fighting starts or whatever, there's a point where there's this, this English soldier with his sword out. Okay. And he sees William Wallace oh, um, just not too far from him. And William Wallace has his back turned. Okay, he's like this. So this English soldier with his sword out is running towards William Wallace. Well, then William Wallace turns around with this giant wooden sledgehammer in his hand. And so, I mean, the guess, English soldier, sword out, sees him, turns around, and just takes off the other way. Spoiler alert, he, he, he catches him. I don't have to say that. He catches him, all right, in a few steps. But, but it struck me this week as I was studying this passage, I was like, you know, why, why did the English soldier run away? Why did he run away? Because it's his job. Like, that's it. He's not even from Scotland. He's just stationed at this, this local magistrate. This, and I don't know if you know Mel Gibson at all. Nobody has the crazy eyes like Mel Gibson, right? Like, and so this guy turns around with the crazy eyes, a sledgehammer. He's like, I'm out. I'm done. Like he, he, the thing is, if you're a higher hand, you don't get paid if you're not alive to receive that paycheck, Right? There's literally a line later in the movie where the, the English king who sends in these, these Irish conscripts, right? People they paid to, and he says, they're going to, it's like archers. He's like, no, he's like, send in the Irish. He's like, the arrows cost money. The dead cost nothing. He, that's how terrible, that's how terrible this king was. But he was saying like, a dead guy doesn't get a pay, doesn't, you don't have to pay him, you know, which is terrible. But this English guy, he's making this decision for him. He's like, this is not worth my paycheck. And he just takes up now. Unfortunately, it didn't help. He didn't get away. But... But here's the point. For William Wallace, he had, every, he had lost everything, right? I mean, he was, he, it was in here that he was going to avenge that. He, the, the freedom, he had had enough of not, them not having freedom. It was, it was something so much deeper that he cared about. That guy was just getting paid, and he was like, I'm not going to do this. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here in this chapter, in these verses we just read. He says, the hired hand won't die for the paycheck because he doesn't get the paycheck if he dies, okay? But the shepherd, he says he loves the sheep. He says he'll do whatever it takes. He says he spends every day with them. Maybe some shepherds, they would have owned those sheep. That would have been their livelihood, right? And they owned them. But even if they weren't, they spent every waking moment with those sheep. They love them. He says he can call them out by name. He said in his initial illustration, he loves those sheep. That's how shepherd take care compared to a hired hand that's just there to help with some details. And he would do whatever it takes to save them, even if it meant he had to give his own life to save them. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. It's interesting here because in verse 10, which is the thief, it starts talking about the thief. Even above that in uh, verse 7 and 8, it talks about the thieves and the robbers come, right? What's a thief's, thief's main job? Why do we call him a thief? They do what? They steal, right? That's what, that's by definition, that's what they do, right? They, they steal. 
okay? They, the thief takes what belongs to someone else for their, his own selfish gain. Maybe to keep it, maybe to sell it, to make money off it, maybe to eat it, which is where the killing might come in, right? He might eat that sheep to, to stay alive or whatever. And, and you see here, it talks about it, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. But the first thing is steal, because that's what a thief does, and kill and destroy. And the thing is, destruction comes from any of those dishonest gain things. We've, we've seen that a lot over the last few years, looting and those kind of things, not getting into political thing again, okay? But just then there's just destruction that comes along with that, and people end up dying sometimes because of all this, but it really came down to someone just being selfish, them trying to steal something for their own gain, and then it, it spirals into that. But the thief's main purpose is to steal, to take from that. But here in verse 12, Jesus switches and he starts talking about the wolf coming. If you're a sheep and a wolf's coming, what does the wolf represent to you? Death. That's the grim reaper, buddy. To a sheep? So when he says, when the wolf comes, so he says, when death comes, only the shepherd stays to defend the sheep. He switches gears here, and he starts talking about the wolf represents death. By Jesus talking about the wolf here, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about death coming. He says only the shepherd stays to defend the sheep because he loves them. He loves those sheep. And Ephesians 5.2 says, Christ loved us and gave himself for us. That's how we know. Jesus referencing the wolf is talking about death, and when death comes, he will sacrifice himself so that we may live. That's what Jesus is saying. And by that act, we will know that he is the real deal, that he's not the hired hand, he's the good shepherd. Okay? Let's continue reading here, verse 14. It says, I am the good shepherd. It says it again. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them in also. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The other thing to understand about this passage today is this. There is only one. There is only one. Verse 16 says, there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Here's what that means for us. Firstly, everyone is welcome in the family of God. That's what he's saying here. Everyone is welcome in the family of God through Jesus. Verse 16, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them in also. Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience. And so when he says, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen, well, who is he talking about? Yeah, us. We, they call them Gentiles. Anyone who wasn't the Jewish people, the Israelites, the people of God. And, the, and Jesus is making that point right up front now. He said, I have other sheep that aren't in the sheep pen. Because the people who he was talking to would have thought the Messiah was coming just for them to save Israel, okay? And he's saying it's so much greater than that. He's saying, I have other sheep, the Gentiles. And every one of us is a Gentile. Well, most of us, I should say, okay? Most of us don't have Jewish descent um, here. But he's saying that is for everyone. 1 Peter 3, 18 says, For Christ also suffered sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. And there's only one that's righteous. He says, for the unrighteous, which is all, in order to bring you to God. I love that Peter used that at the end. 
He's talking about once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. Because anybody who reads this, it's to you. That's why I think that's why Peter put it this way. He said, it's to bring you to God, and you to God, and you to God. Because he died once for all. Every single person is welcome in the family of God. But secondly, this, what this means for us, and more importantly really for us today, there is not more than one way to follow Jesus. There is not more than one way to follow Jesus. Yes, everyone must decide for themselves whom they will serve, or even how they will serve. But there is one flock, and there is one shepherd. And it's very clear that he made that point in this teaching. There is one. There is one flock, and there is one shepherd, and that is Jesus. Here's my point. There is no room for dabbling in Christianity. Jesus made no concessions to just sort of follow Jesus. The thing is, he didn't just sort of die for your sins. He didn't just sort of come back to life. He didn't just sort of conquer death. He gave it all. He died for all sins. He conquered death, period, end of sentence. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He says there's one shepherd to this one flock. There is one way to follow me. I'm going all in. He says, how about you? There is one way to follow Jesus. There is one flock. He said in this, in this initial illustration, he said, Jesus says that the, they, he will go out, the, the shepherd will go out ahead of them and they will follow him. In other words, the way he leads is the way we should follow. He says the way, we, the way he leads is the way we should follow. Well, how did, how did Jesus lead? He gave it all for you. So, if I want to follow, what must I do? Let's continue this, verse 17. It says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my father third thing I want you to understand is no one took his life, he gave it. He's making a point here to, to make sure we know that no one takes his life, Jesus gives it up. Because obviously there will be people later on, I mean, there's people who betray him, people who call for his death, the Jewish people. They're, they're, of course, the Romans are the ones who actually put him up on the cross. But he makes a very distinct point here to say, no one takes my life, I give it up. It, it, um, here in verse eight, 18, let's look at 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. No one takes Jesus' life. He laid it down. Remember, Jesus by his very nature never needed to experience death. We talked about that, that last week. God has neither beginning nor end. Philippians 2 talks about how Jesus was equal with God, but he didn't consider that equality something to be grasped, and instead he made himself nothing. There is no reason, naturally, that Jesus would need to experience death. And so he instead, though, he said, I will give my life. He gave his life in place of yours and mine. He gave it. And here's the thing to understand. Jesus didn't personally, for himself, gain anything from giving his life for us. Other than what we see here is he says, the love of my father. He says, my father loves me because I give 
give my life. But the thing is, I think that's one of those verses we could take out of context because the way he says it, he says, my father loves me because I give my life. But the thing is, he already had the love of the father. In, in the beginning of John, when he's baptized, he, he's, he, he, the voice of God speaks and says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. He, he loved him. And it's not like, I think it's like that thing when I would say, man, I love my son because he does this. But it doesn't mean I didn't love him unless he performs this certain thing. It just means that I, I love him for that. All of us have said that. And that's really what he's saying. He's like, my father loves me for this. He's, he's, he's told me and get, shown me love because I was willing to do this. But the thing is, he, he gave everything and gained nothing. We gained everything. We gained everything through that act of sacrifice. He gave everything and gained nothing. We give nothing and gained everything. That is why it's so important that we understand that he gave his life and no one took it. And the thing is, this is why Jesus is worthy of our worship. This is why Jesus is worthy of our praise. This is why Jesus is worthy of our gratitude and our thanksgiving, of our devotion. This is why Jesus is worthy of our very life. Because he gave it all for you and for me. This is also why Jesus said in Luke chapter nine, verse 23, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. One of the things I've, I've said this before, but one of the things I love about that scripture is that's Luke chapter nine. In Luke, when do we read about Jesus' crucifixion? Chapter 23. This is well before that. And this would have made no sense. Carry your cross. We, we get it. But they would have not got it. It was prophetic in nature. But when Jesus commands us to take up our cross, it means a couple of things for us. One is that the cross was his calling. It was the thing that he had, the, the mantle he had accepted, he gave his life and he said, I will do this. And so it was the will of God then that he followed that through. We see it in the garden of Gethsemane. He was praying before he was arrested and he, sees, he used the, the term cup, which would have been the th- same idea. He says, if, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. The idea of drinking from your cup was the thing of following that, that calling. And that cross represents that, his purpose in God's holy plan. And he, just like Jesus, we should take up the calling God has put on our life and the purpose that God has given us in his kingdom. We should do that. But it's also, and more importantly, it's the representation of Jesus' sacrifice. When we talk about the cross, it's Jesus' death. We wear our necklace with the cross on it or we got whatever. I don't wear earrings, but some people do, you know, crosses. The reason the cross is a symbol for us is because it's the death of Jesus. It's the sacrifice of of Jesus. It's when Jesus gave everything for us and when he said, I will not stop. I am not just the hired hand. I am the good shepherd and I will lay down my life for my sheep and I will see it through to the end and by that you will know that I am the gate. I am your savior. I am your Lord. I am your shepherd. And now he says, you take up your cross. He says, you give it all for me, knowing that I first gave it all for you. That's what, when Jesus in Luke 9 says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily. Their cross, it represents the sacrifice of Christ. And he says, it's your turn. And he doesn't just ask for everything, for nothing. He said, I gave everything when I gained nothing. And what I'm asking now from you is, 
I already gave you everything. Can you give everything back to me? It's time for your sacrifice. It's time for my sacrifice. You see, it w this would have all been lip service in this passage if Jesus hadn't seen it through. If, Je if Jesus, if Jesus didn't just make claims here. He said, wait and see, and you'll know without a doubt who I am. And you'll know because of what I gave for you. No one else would have seen this through, he said, but me. And you'll know that. You know, it's so important to understand something about the Pharisees as we look at these passages. You know, a lot of these, the religious leaders, that was, this was what would have been at the time the popular group of religious leaders was the Pharisees, and that's why they're mentioned so much. Okay, but most of these I am statements are responses to Pharisees, or at the very least, they're aimed at the Pharisees. Like sometimes it's that Jesus knew they were here, they knew their heart, and so he would just start like saying something here and was for them. You guys ever done that? My kids do that. They try to tell on each other that way, and it drives me insane. I hate it. <laughs> like yell at their brother, hoping I hear him, and I just want to yell at them. You know what I mean? But like he would kind of do that thing. He would say it, it mean that. But in this case, we get a very direct. Like verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 1, very truly I tell you Pharisees. And he's talking to them, and most of them are that. But, but the thing that is so important for us to understand about the Pharisees is that they were extremely well-intentioned. Sometimes we see them as like the evil they were in the story. They're the bad guy, and Jesus is the good guy. But the thing is, the Pharisees were extremely well-intentioned. Their whole, their whole um, existence, when they call themselves, what they were trying to do was to try to be as ordered and, and, and structured and, 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 and deliberate as possible and diligent as possible, much like the priests of old. Because remember, we talked about the tabernacle series this, this spring, and the priests had to go through a very specific way to be consecrated, to make sure they did everything in the right order before they went into the presence of God. Or once a year when they would go in the Holy of Holies, where the, where the ark was, where the presence of God actually resided. The holy place was just like next to that, and so you would experience the presence of God. They had to do everything exactly right. If they didn't, they would die. They would, God would strike them down because God is completely set apart. Okay? And so the Pharisees' goal was, if we can be as ordered and intentioned and diligent as possible, then maybe we can experience the presence of God, just like they did. Because remember, we're, we're in a... We're in a season in the church, we talk about when we see the prophecy of Joel coming out where the Spirit of God is poured out on all people. And we see that in the book of Acts, they talk about in the beginning of that, that the Spirit of God and the presence of God can reside in our hearts. We are the temple now of the Holy Spirit. They were not in that. They, they, the presence of God would come on certain people for certain times and it also resided in the temple or in the tabernacle before that when it was just a tent, okay? And so they were trying to, as best they could to be in the presence of God. Be holy to be with a holy God. The problem was in doing so, they invented, in a sense, their own way to get to God. And that's why there was all these extra rules. Because they were, but they, again, they were very well-intentioned and they were trying to do that. But when they did that, they invented their own way to get to God. So much so that they didn't recognize the way to God when he was standing right in front of them. And that is so important to understand because we often think of them, as I said before, as the evil in the story, when really misguided is what they were. 
And in their blindness, they misguided others. That's what we see in John 9, verse 41. They were claiming to be able to see, but Jesus says that wasn't legitimate. They were trying to open their own eyes. That's what we see when he says, you were blind. If, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. He says, you're trying to open your own eyes and only I can do that. And Jesus in the, these I am statements is speaking truth that's not being heard or recognized. That's really what's happening. And it's crazy, you continue to read in chapter 10 in just a few verses, and somebody, after this, what we were just talking about for the last couple of messages on this, and they say, when are you just gonna come out and tell us? And he's like, I've been saying it. Like, he, that's what literally his response. He's like, I've been telling you, but you couldn't hear it. You wouldn't hear it. Because you had created your own way, and I didn't fit that. And the ultimate challenge for us as a church as we study these statements is do we recognize who Jesus is and what he means for us or have we invented our own way to God which is in fact no way at all? Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And what is our response? It should be to live our lives for him, every part of him. That means I need to deny myself and take up my cross daily and follow him, and that takes sacrifice. That means I have to lose something. What's the bottom line today? It's this. Jesus laid down his life for you. Will you lay it down for him? Jesus laid down his life for you will you lay down yours for him? Would you pray with me? Worship team, would you come? Lord God, I thank you for your word. But ultimately, Lord, I thank you that you say you are the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, I thank you that you laid down your life for me. And today, Lord, I, I pray in light of that, would you lay on our hearts today that same devotion? Lord, in the way that you led, I pray that we could follow. some time and have just an opportunity for some prayer today. It's still early. Don't check out. Don't leave. I did that on purpose. Okay. But here's what God has laid on my heart this week. That some of us are making our own way to God. We're trying to do good and be better, but we're avoiding the sacrifice. There's some of us that are trying to do Christianity. Some of us trying to make that happen in the way that we would see it fit, which is exactly what the Pharisees do. 
And the thing is, the Pharisees accidentally became what we call the Pharisees, what we think of them. And sometimes that happens to us too, though. We accidentally become Pharisees ourselves. We accidentally try to make our own way to God with all good intentions. I'm not accusing you of anything bad. I'm saying with all good intentions, you've tried to do well and be better. But Jesus says, that's not, that's not the way. He says, I am the good shepherd. I have laid down my life. All I ask of you is to lay it down as you follow me. There's nothing you and I can do to be better or be good enough to follow Jesus. We just have to lay it down before him. And here's, here's what I feel like God has put in my heart today is will you lay it all down before the 